This is Works in Progress, a podcast from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. The composer, bandleader, and pianist Arturo O'Farrell has his hands full. O'Farrell, who has won seven Grammy Awards, is a professor of global jazz studies at the UCLA Herb Albert School of Music, where he's also the Associate Dean of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. O'Farrell is the director of the renowned Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra. He's just released the album Dreaming in Lions, his debut on the legendary Blue Note Records label. He recorded it with a scaled-down version of the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, a 10-piece he calls the Afro-Latin Jazz Ensemble. Among the musicians on the album are Arturo's sons, trumpeter Adam O'Farrell and drummer Zach O'Farrell. The album contains two multi-movement suites, Despedida, a meditation on farewells, which you're listening to now, and Dreaming in Lions, inspired by Ernest Hemingway's novella, The Old Man in the Sea. On top of all that, O'Farrell is working to open a permanent home for his orchestra in East Harlem, the birthplace of Afro-Cuban jazz in the 1940s. The building will include 300 units of affordable and transitional housing and a performing arts center featuring a concert hall, classrooms, and more. On Monday, November 22nd, O'Farrell will participate in the UCLA Arts Public Discussion Series 10 Questions to discuss the question, how do we sustain? Arturo O'Farrell, thank you so much for joining us on Works in Progress. I'm delighted to be joining you on Works in Progress as I myself am a work much in progress. (laughs) Yes, aren't we all? I would love to start with this new album that you have, um, Dreaming in Lions. Tell me about this new album. This album is uh, very personal to me because the music from this album was written for a a company, a dance company in Cuba that I I adore, love. I consider them family. Um, The dance company is called Malpaso. And uh, both the the music on this recording comes from two suites that I composed for ballets for Malpaso. One suite is called the Despedida Suite. And it's also deeply personal, that word despedida means farewell in Spanish. And it's a very, very personal word because as I was writing this, I was losing my mother, leaving an institution, saying goodbye to many people. So it's it's a really deeply personal work. And, and I feel like every note in that particular suite is, is heartfelt from whether it's good or bad, I don't know, but it's very much a personal, personal, personal work. The same thing I can say for the second, those are the first five selections on the recording. It's a Despedida suite. The next and the remaining selections are from a suite called Dreaming in Lions, which is the title of the album as well. And it's a work that is based loosely on the choreography that it was also loosely based on The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. And it deals with issues, again, that I think are very personal to me. It deals with issues of wistfulness, alienation. It was a very kind of a very amazing time period for it to come out during COVID because in a way we all feel a little alienated these days. We're all feeling disconnected and we're all feeling somehow disconnected from our lives. Even as they return, we're still all kind of discovering a brand new sense of this world. And so in in a way that work is very much about feeling alienation. Of course, The Old Man in the Sea is a story about an elderly fisherman who was way past his prime and who dreams wistfully of being a young man and being on a beach in Africa and seeing lions. And there's all this beautiful connection with with a lot of the emotions and, and things that we're dealing with in 
contemporary times. So I, I, I also feel that's a very personal work. And um, it's also an unusual departure for me because it's not a Latin jazz record, not that I think Latin jazz exists, <laughs> but it, it's definitely something that, that, that took, uh, took a lot of people by surprise. It's way more compositional. Yeah. And this is your first album on Blue Note, legendary jazz label. Uh, how did they feel about you taking that kind of a departure from the type of music that you traditionally have played? Well, you know, Blue Note has had some tradition of Latin jazz. Of course, it was the home of Chucho Valdez for many years and other and others. But I think that Don was, who's the president of Blue Note right now, is really an adventurous spirit. And he's taking jazz in all kinds of directions. I mean, you know, starting with the very first records of Nora Jones, I think, which he oversaw. Uh, the direction for Blue Note has expanded and grown. It's still a home for the classic catalog. It reissued the greatest music. I mean, this is an iconic label. 80% of the music I listened to and revered when I was growing up was found on this label. And to find myself on this label and to be able to find myself on this label recording and releasing the crazy music that I do is astonishing to me. I'm very grateful. Yeah. Now I'm speaking to you just days before you're going to be playing at the Kennedy Center with um, the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra and Dr. Cornell West performing Four Questions. How did this collaboration with Dr. West come about? Well, I've always loved Dr. West. I know he's a controversial figure, especially in intelligentsia circles. But I've always felt that he was a truth-sayer, a prophet. He holds our feet to the fire. He speaks directly to the evils in our society. And I've seen him a lot on YouTube, but I was incredibly elated to see him in an audience once that I was uh, performing in and was invited to be a host for a, a, a discussion that he had with Bob Baveke and the president of the Communist Party at Riverside Church on revolution and faith. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I watched him speak for the first time, you know, live, and I just found his oratory electrifying. He reminded me of a John Coltrane. And so immediately I get the idea of writing a concerto for him, which is ended up being the four questions that he's that he expounds on the uh, four questions that W.E.B. Du Bois poses in his book, Souls of Black Folk. And um, I had the opportunity to, to be at an anti-police brutality rally with him as well. So I approached him with this and and he was just so gracious. I mean, he is he is exactly as he is, as you see him on CNN. He's the big spirit with a warm heart, and he just jumped on the opportunity to be a part of this project, for which I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Uh, and Dr. West is a kind of preeminent academic and social justice activist, and you also have made social justice part of your work and part of your life for many, many years, so you've connected in that sense. Have you ever received any kind of blowback or any criticism from the music community or the Latin jazz community for your political stances? I have been called horrible things by Paquito de Rivera for my stance on Cuba, which is not political, which is cultural. I have been, there are certainly festivals and uh, venues that I'm not invited to. I have actually been criticized by critics that musicians don't have a right to have a political voice that we should just entertain. I had somebody in Birdland during a performance, I, I happened to introduce a tune by saying that we need some optimism because the news coming out of Washington is, isn't very, very, very good. And this person stood up and started cursing at me 
in a nightclub. And then when they were finally ejected, the owner of the nightclub said to me, I wouldn't go outside if I were you. They're standing on the corner yelling, Heil Hitler, doing the salute. Whether or not you take a political stance, you're taking a political stance. You speak for tyranny when you don't speak against tyranny. And there's so many things I love about life, so many people I love in my community and in my building and on my block and in my university. And I, I, I speak to that. I speak to the idea that, yes, there are things that you have to speak out against. And people come up to me periodically and say, thank you for saying things that we don't have the platform to say. But yeah, I've definitely shot my career in the head a few times. <laughs> well, maybe one of those issues that you have spoken out about is immigration. And um, you were part of this pretty amazing multimedia project um, called Fandango at the Wall in 2018. And I'd love to hear more about this music festival, which was founded by a librarian, takes place at the Tijuana-San Diego border. And uh, the documentary is now streaming on HBO Max. And there's also this album and book. Um, what was it like being part of this festival and part of this project? Well, if you look out across the border fence and you see a fellow musician jamming with you in the presence of chicken wire and automatic weapons and patrol dogs, and it is, there's no words to describe what that's like because in that moment, you're negating the fence. You're negating the automatic weapon. You're negating the patrol dogs and the chicken wire. You're actually using the very tools of oppression and division to declare community. There's no greater feeling in the world than to be able to say, you did not succeed. You know, Mexico and the United States have been a part of each other forever. You know, half of the Southwest was Mexican. And, and the act of violence against Mexicans and immigrants in general that was uh, fostered during the Trump administration could not stop us, would not stop us, will not stop us. The, the, the very beauty of this culture of San Jarocho music and the very beauty of the people that live along the border in Mexico cannot be denied. And, and this movie was not just, a, it, wasn't a, it wasn't even so much a political statement as it was a celebration of humanity. Unbelievable. You know, and then you meet these people in the Fandango at the Wall film and you get to see how beautiful their lives are. And you really wonder all that culture, all that joy, all that love, all that health. How come we don't sometimes have that here? What is it about us that we don't celebrate the way that they do? And, and I, in a very thought provoking way, I find that countries that we traditionally may say that we say there's narcotraficantes or there's we say this a lot about Cuba, that Cubans are suffering and. Actually, they're very rich. They have nothing. They have no food. They have no, I mean, they have literally nothing, but they're really rich in community and love and all the things. And we can live here, as you know, in a city of millions and feel utterly alone. Yeah, I mean, that spirit of the, the people and the musicians really comes across in that footage from the Fandango Fronterizo Festival and a, a feeling of optimism that, you know, this division between our countries and our cultures can be overcome you know, that there can be unity. It doesn't make sense economically, that division. Mm -hmm. I mean, from, from a, a purely economic, I mean, people say that immigrants are stealing our jobs. That's not true. Automation is stealing our jobs. Corporate greed is stealing the work from Americans, not immigrants. Immigrants come here and blow leaves and make honest livings. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there, there was a musician there talking about how Son Harocho music has helped 
him deal with, you know, times of struggle. And, you know, I think for a lot of us that have gone through this last year and a half, music has been a big part of our overcoming a lot of the isolation that you talked about um, with the pandemic. In fact, your um, Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra put together uh, these weekly concerts online called Virtual Birdland. And um, it actually made the the New York Times list of 10 best quarantine concerts. You're at the top of that list. And something the New York Times wrote about the concert series was painstakingly edited together from solo home recordings, the music still swings mightily. How do you swing mightily when you're all in different places, you're, you're in different homes, and yet somehow it all kind of comes together and flows as though you were performing together? How do you do that? Well, there's there's a technical answer and there's a spiritual answer. The technical answer is that only one person is playing alone. That's the drummer. He gets a scratch track put together by synthesizers and he plays to that. So he's the only person that plays alone because as soon as he lays down his tracks, the bass player plays to his track. And then the conga player plays to the trio. And then the bongo player plays to the quartet. And then I play to the quintet. So after that first layer, it's all real-time music making. And then it's sent out to the lead instrument, to the soloist, to the guests. So it's all real-time music making. And that's that's the technical reality of it. But the spiritual reality is that the band is united in its mission. In the beginning, we did that virtual Birdland streaming to raise funds for freelance artists who are struggling to make a living. Over time, I realized something even spookier. In this exchange, you really only need two entities you need a giver and a receiver and the receiver by the way becomes the giver because they give back and the chats in the bottom of the screen they tell us how much it means to them that we're there every week for them this is going to be week 80 that we're about to do and the truth of the matter is that in this relationship all you need is a giver and receiver and that that sacred bond is where the music takes place that's where the excitement takes place in, in the relationship between those two entities and those two entities are not determined by venue by medium, those two entities are not determined to by any means by, by, by conveyance. That is just a spiritual relationship. We play, people listen, they give us love in return, and the circle is unbroken. It's a divine circle that cannot be broken. And when I say spiritual, I don't, I don't mean denomination. I'm just saying that yeah. those things are a mystery and they cannot be contained by digital realities. Mm-hmm. Um, I tuned in for a concert that your students put together for the Fowler, for the um, the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra Spring Concert at UCLA. I mean, it's incredible, these young people playing so beautifully uh, together while apart, still together, like you were just describing. Um, and seeing you kind of talking between the artists, I mean, you're not talking about these kids as just sort of like young students just kind of learning their way. I mean, they're... They sound like professional musicians and you you even have some of them playing concerts with you guys. And, you know, I have to tell you that the pandemic was the year that the college students taught the professors. <laughs> I just got to be honest with you. They, they, they showed up with so much ingenuity. They showed up with so much drive and enthusiasm. I mean, they really, they're the ones who manufactured the joy for me. All I did was give them the tools and they're the ones that ran with it. And, 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 Truly one of the most sacred experiences in my teaching life has been the year of UCLA Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra about putting on those concerts at the Fowler. It was a sacred, sacred experience that I'll never, never forget. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, I suppose, a silver lining if you can find one of the pandemic is the students 
finding their own resilience and being able to overcome that difficulty. I mean, so much about music is, or performing music is being present with other people and being able to somehow pull that off remotely is really remarkable. Well, it, here's here, herein is the lesson that we are, in fact, very much part of a global family, whether we're behind screens or physically in rooms. And what the pandemic has done is has shown us undeniably that we're a part of an interconnected global reality, that we, are, we, we, don't ha- we can't play the isolationism game anymore. We can't play the nationalism game anymore. It's going to lead to our eventual downfall. We are part of one another irrevocably. The virus itself showed us that. Everyone on Earth suffered. And the Cubans sent a medical brigade to Italy when it first surfaced. We are part of each other's demise or part of each other's solution. Take a choice. Make that choice today. Yeah. You know, I mean, besides playing music and bringing people that solace, I mean, um, you, with your nonprofit, the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, did create this emergency artist fund, and you were raising money to help your fellow musicians. Talk about that uh, obligation that you feel, that sense of responsibility to those around you to make sure that they get through this hard time, because it wasn't guaranteed that musicians would get through the pandemic. We had no idea how long it would last and when people would be able to perform again. We, um, my father's centennial begins tomorrow, the 100-year celebration of Chico Farrell's birth. And I watched him for years and years put food on musicians' plates, employ musicians. And I thought that was so sacred. Musicians are freelancers. Musicians spend their whole lives uh, dedicated to a discipline that very often doesn't provide any, any financial uh, security. And it's amazing to me that you could work as hard as any doctor and still not be sure that you're going to work. And so I, I, I hold musicians up to the highest standard of love and devotion. To be a musician is a very high calling. And so, yes, my heart really goes out to, to the folks, and not just musicians, by the way, because during this campaign that we had, we invited performance artists and actors and, and singers and people of all the dancers, choreographers to apply for funding. And in fact, one of my proudest moments as a human being was getting an application from a stand-up comedian because I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy. And I just felt so good saying, well, look, yes, you're a freelance artist. Your livelihood depends on a freelance economy. And to be able to participate in helping you stay in New York or wherever you know, stay solvent was a huge point of honor for me. Yeah. So, okay. So you just mentioned your father's helping other musicians, your father, Chico Farrell, legendary, iconic uh, Latin jazz musician. You yourself um, revered jazz musician, and now you have two sons, Zachary and Adam, uh, a drummer and a trumpeter, respectively. What advice or guidance do you feel like you got from your dad that you have been able to pass on to your sons? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know if I've been able to give them advice. I, I believe in the principle of parenting by confusion. Don't, you know, <laughs> like I am definitely not a role model, but I know one thing that my father really inspired me. My father really inspired me with his curiosity and his intellect and his commitment to integrity. And I think my, my sons have seen that in him and in me. And I feel like their journey, which in some ways is just beginning, is about curiosity and how this music works and how that composition works and how I can learn this or that. Just staying aware and, 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 and staying thoughtful and, and, and really conscious about what we do as musicians is something that I hope they've seen from me, that I've learned from my father. 
uh, and that I learned from Carla Blay too, just that curiosity. My father studied till he could no longer live. I mean, he was still studying scores, Haydn string quartets. I mean, that's the kind of curiosity I, I wanted to have and that I want my, my sons to have. And you mentioned Carla Blay. You uh, performed in her band for three years in the early 80s, right? Yes, I got to see an American master close-up. And she just recently uh, contributed to our repertoire. She was commissioned by the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance to uh, write a piece for the orchestra. And she turned in this masterpiece called Blue Palestine. And so, you know, again, somebody whose intellect, whose curiosity, whose life force is as vital as as ever was. And I got to see that when I was 19. The Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, which we mentioned was helping musicians throughout the pandemic and which you are the founder and artistic director of, is now involved in a housing project in East Harlem, the Afro-Latin Music and Arts Center. I don't know how you find time to do all this stuff, but what's going on with that? How are you now involved in a housing center? Well, we've been resident artists at the Harlem School of the Arts, at the New York City Mission Society, and we've desperately needed our own brick and mortar space for a long time because we do a lot of education. We send teachers into the schools. We have uh, professional training programs. I mean, we really have needed a physical home forever. And about a year ago, a contractor by the name of Mega partnered with a community services organization uh, by the name of Lantern, and they invited us to be their cultural partner. And so we went, I sat in front of New York City Housing Preservation uh, Development Commissioners and testified about the work that we've done and been doing. And somehow, miraculously, they chose us, they chose the RFP. And so Timbali Terrace will be built on 118th Street and Park Avenue. And the first two floors of Timbali Terrace will be the Afro-Latin Music Arts Center, which will have a recital hall, classrooms, which is even more exciting, classrooms, an office suite, a digital editing suite, a community cafe. And I aim to fill that place every single second of every single day with lots of buzzing activity, musical activity, families, tios, tias, playing with primos, primas. I mean, just this is really exciting to me to be, because you know what? If you would sum up my life, it would be this. I don't like elitism. I don't, I want to deconstruct elitism. And I want to take us off the stage and put us on the street in the community, just like our Son Harocho friends. Art in service to community is what I really believe. And the greatest art is in service to truth-telling to community. And this, this opportunity to serve the people of Spanish Harlem is an embodiment of everything I believe. So I'm delighted. Yeah, I don't know where, I don't know how I do these things I do, but I do surround myself with real adults who are brilliant and have many talents and who know when to say no to me. <laughs> Aside from your faculty position at the Herb Alpert School of Music, you're also the Assistant Dean of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, and you co-chair the school's Anti-Racism Action Committee. What is your focus in, in pushing through with this work? Well, we all know that the statistics the demographics of the LA community do not reflect necessarily the demographics of the city of Los Angeles or the state of California. Um, that's a problem that every institution has everywhere in the nation. And so there's the work of equity, diversity, and inclusion is, is doing everything we can 
to include, invite, and belong, have more people belong to this community that maybe don't think they have the right to. Plus dealing with people in our school community who don't necessarily feel welcome, who don't necessarily feel that there is a place for them. And this could be people who are transgender, people who are, are, are fall along racial or ethnic lines that aren't necessarily overwhelmingly majority. And so the work is really exciting to me because it, it, it also follows with, with, with my, you know, my, my idea that art is in service to community. Community has to reflect back the real population demographics. And so I think we need to work on that. I also find it really interesting because there's a lot of talk about decolonizing the curriculum and there's a lot of talk. And, and, and certainly music is a place where we have, tend to define music as a very narrow reality defined by 18th century white males. And it isn't that at all. Music is a universal truth, a universal global truth that is practiced differently by people of many different skin colors. And so I think the definition of music is very exciting because it's in, in the process of changing. And I want to see that change. I want to see the definition of what is art and what is music be more inclusive. And, and, and thanks to the dean, the inaugural dean of the School of Music, uh, Eileen Strempel, she's given me a platform on which to put my energies towards that effort. And I'm very grateful. What room do you see for a kind of interdisciplinary approach uh, to the arts at UCLA? Like, how would you like to see music work across disciplines and mediums to, you know, to work with visual arts or theater, film and television or, or other ways to see kind of the arts come together at UCLA? You know, it's funny because a lot of institutions are, are really experimenting with interdisciplinary uh, art making. And I think that in some ways UCLA is a much more traditional model of arts as schools. But I think there are visionaries within the UCLA community that definitely want to experiment with interdisciplinary activities. I think it's natural to see that it's already taking place on so many levels, that opera can be mixed with graphic design. Graphic design can be mixed with choreography, can be mixed. I have a dream of doing a concert and there's a culinary, there's a chef in the front of the stage who is creating dishes as we perform. That to me is the interdisciplinary. Very cool. Well, I, I hope that dream becomes a reality. It's, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> well, Arturo Farrell, thank you so much for your time and for joining Works. Abhishek, what a, what a pleasure to be able to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. That's Arturo O'Farrell, composer, band leader, pianist, professor of global jazz studies at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, and the school's associate dean of equity, diversity, and inclusion. You're listening to Dreaming in Lions from O'Farrell's new album of the same name on Blue Note Records. On Monday, November 22nd, O'Farrell will participate in the UCLA Arts Public Discussion Series 10 Questions to discuss the question, How Do We Sustain?, alongside Kara Horowitz, an environmental lawyer working to address climate change, and Drea Letamendi, a clinical psychologist and mental health consultant. You can RSVP at arts.ucla.edu slash 10 questions. This has been Works in Progress, a podcast from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. Thanks for listening and be well.